Years ago, when I was in Texas, I taught algebra and geometry at a public high school, and one of the constant complaints that you get from students is like, this is worthless, I'm never gonna use this, I'm gonna be a YouTube star when I grow up, I don't need to know algebra. Um, and so to answer this complaint, modern curricula try to use real world, world scenarios. There's lots of word problems, lots of application, scenarios like this one. Johnny's making pancakes for his baseball team this weekend, and each pancake requires a quarter cup of batter, which is made up of one-third water and two-thirds mix. If Johnny is planning on making 5,280 pancakes for his 12-person team, how many cups of pancake mix should he buy at the store? Uh, Shep and I still uh, marvel at the scenarios that people find themselves in and the thousands of pancakes that they have to make for people. Um, word problems, though, can really spend students. Um, they might be rocking all the brute math and just like following all the steps, doing everything they should, but then they hit the application and they freeze. Uh, if the problem isn't laid out clearly and simply for them, they think they can't do it, but they can. They've been doing it, and now we're just sort of put a situation on it. And so as a teacher, you're always encouraging students to slow down and start with what you know. What do you know about Johnny and his pancakes? Um, and not only that, what's important, what's relevant? Uh, you inevitably have students that are just like pulling numbers from the paragraph and just like putting it in a calculator. And you're like, no, let's slow down. Let's think about this. Um, because not all the numbers are important. Some of them are put there on purpose to distract you uh, from getting the answer, which, by the way, is 880. Johnny needs 880 cups of pancake mix uh, to feed his ravenous, overweight baseball team, right? Um, last week, we started the book of 1 Peter, and the Apostle Peter is writing to a struggling church. Uh, we learned about their situation. Peter refers to them as exiles. They're scattered widely across an area of Asia Minor, the size of California. Many of them were literally cast out from their homeland. They're not from Asia Minor, but were sent there, rejected by their families, their cultures, their cities, their emperor. They're forced to the margins because of their faith. And historians already tell us that the earliest Christians were often drawn from the margins. They were already poor and marginalized, enslaved, a lower class before Christ. And their neediness is actually what drew them to Jesus in the first place, a savior who embraced them and gave them great dignity. But now, because of their faith, they're pushed even further out. They're despised and rejected by nearly everyone around them. And so these churches are having to navigate a very challenging dynamic that would not really let up for a couple centuries. And understandably, they're confused, right? They're asking themselves, what am I doing wrong? Is there something wrong with me? A lot of times in suffering, we're asking that. Is there something wrong with me? Is there something wrong with God? Peter, when you preached and taught about life with Jesus, I thought I understood what you meant. But now that I'm living it out, I realize I don't get it. I don't actually understand. I wonder how many of us relate to this church's confusion, where we thought we understood, but the older we get, different situations that we're put in, suffering and hardship that we face, we realize we don't. We've experienced life and suffering and persecution, and I don't know what to do. And if that's you, what do we do? Well, the wise and humble thing to do when we're confused is to raise our hands and say, teacher, I don't get it. Like, can you, can you help me? Lord, I need help. Church, I need help. Brother, sister, friend, spirit, help me. 
And Peter responds like a good math teacher. He sort of reminds them, like, what do you know? That's where he starts. He doesn't immediately give them advice. He doesn't immediately move to strategy. He asks them, what do you know? When you're confused and struggling, the best place to start is there. And then simultaneously, what's important? Because there's a lot of things that you know that are true that are not the most important things. Not all truths carry the same weight. Some facts are more important than others, and mature faith requires we know the difference. Before we move into what Peter considers to be the most important things, I wonder, just an opportunity for you to share, what less important truths tend to get in the way of your thinking through suffering, difficulty, challenges? What less important truths tend to get in the way when you're processing and you're suffering? What, what seems to be so important and you actually need to get it out of your mind? How long it's going to last. How long? Absolutely. We're just looking for the end date. How can I lessen this discomfort? How can I decrease it? Yeah. To where like, it doesn't matter what it is, we're just trying to turn the volume down, which is understandable. What did I do wrong? Yeah. Where am I to blame? Yeah, we forget that Jesus told us that we would suffer, right? Um, and so we assume suffering should be an exception, right? But it's not necessarily. Maybe you didn't do anything wrong. Who, the next question here... Who and what in your life is ready to remind you of the more important truth? So who do you raise, who do you ask for help? And are you good at receiving that? Or is that easy to receive? Yeah, that it's, when you're suffering, it's really helpful to have like an embodied presence of the Lord, you know? Um, and so hopefully that friend is channeling the Spirit and is speaking back to you. That's one of the things that I find really refreshing about the manual journaling, which is new to me, that we're practicing in our citizens' communities, to where not only am I praying to the Father, but then I'm like imagining what he prays back to me. Like I'm asking, like, what would you say to me if I was sitting with you? What would you say to me? As you think through, if there's something top of mind for you um, that you feel like you need help with, I want you to think about who are you going to ask for help? And just like sort of put that in your mind, like who am I asking? Who am I raising my hand and say like, I need some help with this? Because we all need help. Um, but let's go in prayer. Dear Father, we are so thankful that you stand ready to help us. That Jesus stands ready. That we have the spirit of Christ in us. That you hear our prayers 
Help us to be open to your answers, to receive you speaking to us through your word, through the spirit in us, through your church, through brothers and sisters, faithful friends. Um, would we ask for help and then would we listen for it? Father, I pray that especially for this morning as we walk through and listen to the Apostle Peter's help, um, as he writes to a church in a different situation, a different scenario, but still um, still we relate to in so many ways. So like, help us to hear his answers this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So 1 Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. When we talk about suffering, the first important thing Peter wants us to remember is that we are born again. That's the thing he leads with. What we were is not what we are, which means we need to think differently about suffering than we used to think, uh, than we would think if we were not followers of the resurrected Christ. We are born again, and that wild fact changes everything so that suffering doesn't hurt the same way it used to hurt. Suffering doesn't mean the same thing it used to mean. It still hurts. It still has significance. It's not something that we just sort of ignore and go about our business. But after the resurrection of Jesus and after our being born again, it's different. How so? First, being born again gives the Christian a new identity. In the first century, for better or for worse, you were defined by where you came from, right? You are defined by where you came from and to whom you were born. There was no more important fact about you. And so to be born again in the first century is to be given a new parentage, a new dignity, a new family, a new social class, a new vocation, a new nationality, a new everything. How encouraging this must be to those considered exiles by the world, right? Peter's audience had been rejected by their families, by their cultures, by their cities for following Jesus. But now in Jesus, God has christened them into a family, a kingdom with a place and a purpose. But it's more than that too, right? Because they're not just adopted. The Bible does use adoption language where there is a legal change. They're actually born again, right? Um, by telling them that, Peter is teaching us that the change we undergo in Christ is a change in substance. It's a change that is deep in our core. We are not what we were. We are new, still ourselves, but wholly different. Jesus says to Nicodemus in John 3, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And so both of these facts together, their new parentage, new creation, it helps explain the discontinuity that they're experiencing between themselves and the world. The distance is real. It's not a fake distance. It amplifies their exile because to be born again is to leave one's former life behind at the deepest level. Miroslav Volf says it is a new birth. It distances one from the old way of life inherited from one's ancestors and transmitted by the culture at large, a way of life characterized by the lack of knowledge of God and by misguided desires. And so there's tension in this phrase, and that's on purpose, because the early church wasn't just suffering, 
They were being tempted. Peter's addressing a suffering church, and suffering always tempts us. God was testing their faith, but Satan was tempting them away from faith. And so Peter is at pains to show how in Christ their shame is actually their glory. He doesn't want them to misinterpret their present shame or the world's glory. Uh, Listen to what he says in 1 Peter 2.10. Peter says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is a classic verse for how the gospel moves us from shame to glory. Um, I can hardly read it without worshiping. It's such a beautiful story for each of us that once we were not a people, but now we are God's people. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. But there's an edge to it too. An edge that's found all throughout 1 Peter. Imagine a friend or family member overhearing this verse. Once you were not a people, like you are, you were a people. Right? All these people have been born once, and they've been born into a family, into a nation, into a um, city, into a culture, into a religion. And so to say, once you are not a people, is a ridiculous thing to say. How did that, that shows that there is like an edge to Um, what Peter is saying. I'm pausing here because my app just totally is like re-updating itself right now. (laughs) I love that. Um, I was just like, okay, come on. And there we go. Scroll back down. Um, That's fantastic. Um, Just talk amongst yourselves. Uh, It would have been really hard, and and I have actually struggled with preaching this. We live in a time where there's just so much hostility, and so I don't want to preach and like add and contribute to a culture war mentality with the church. But at the same time, there is this like tension in First Peter that's there. There's a reality there that to be born again is 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 kind of Uh, insulting to the people I was born to first. To be exiles, to be a royal people, a holy nation, that would have been really hard for the parents to hear. What do you mean? What was wrong before? In celebrating their new birth, Peter's challenging the Christian community to question their first birth. Consider all the communities and families and religions and associations that you were born into from which you are now being cast out from. Perhaps you're feeling like you've lost something irreplaceable. But look again, have you really lost anything? Viewed within the grand narrative of Scripture, none of those identities and associations count for anything. For Peter, they're not even worth naming. All other peoples are not a people. God says in Isaiah... 40, behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Every connection and community and affinity we think gives us lasting identity and meaning and significance is illusory. And so when we're struggling to maintain our commitment to Christ because of cultural shame and exclusion, Peter stops and asks us, like, what are you really losing? 
Are you really losing anything? We've talked at length how the gospel turns our shame into glory, and that is good news. But the bad news is that in turning our shame into glory, Peter simultaneously turns the world's glory into shame. The upside down applies to them also. Why is the world's glory shameful? And the simplest answer is because it's dying. That's the world's shame. It's, It's dying. It's death. No matter how smart, sophisticated, strong, impressive, grand, beautiful the world is or becomes, it's still passing away. 1 Peter 1, 24, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. That's what's heartbreaking about sin. It brings death. That's why the world's glory is ultimately its shame. And sometimes we have to remind ourselves of this because the world's glory is glitzy, right? It wows, it impresses, it tempts, but it's all vanity apart from Jesus. Think about it from the the perspective now, looking back on this letter. Rome must have looked so strong and powerful to the early Christians. Nothing on earth compared to the glory of Rome at the time. How foolish for the Christians to worship a crucified Jew, a failed revolutionary. And yet no one is worshiping the Roman emperor now. No one. The emperor died, and his glory died with him. Let that be instructive to us who are surrounded by empire that are glorious in so many ways. They're so strong and mighty and sophisticated and beautiful. And there is, there, it is beautiful. It is glorious. It's not a criticism, but death just ruins it. What seems so hard to resist in 60 AD doesn't exist anymore. And so we should ask ourselves, how much time and energy and devotion does this world give to a glory which is dying and actually secretly knows it's dying? That's why they're so anxious about it. What are we marveling at? What are we intimidated by? What glory are you tempted by today which is actually passing away? And so I encourage you to think this week about how Tenuous and temporary glorious, not in a morbid sense, not in a gloating sense, but in a way that makes you grateful for being born again. That makes you grateful for the new creation that began in Christ. Finally, beauty that will last. The world's glory is its shame. But here, In the gospel, in the community of the gospel, in the kingdom of God is glory that will last, glory that won't fade, glory that is so glorious that it can make dead things alive. The world's glory is its shame because its glory is dying, but through the gospel, our shame is actually our glory because Jesus, who was crucified, rose from the dead. And so the death that we experience becomes life in Jesus.
That brings us to Peter's second point of encouragement. Because being born again is not just being given a second chance. It's being given eternity. It's birth without the possibility of death. 1 Peter 1, again, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That's the second thing Peter wants us to know as we process and navigate suffering in our lives. You're born again, which not only gives you a new identity, it gives you an inheritance, an eternal inheritance. And this, again, makes all the difference in how we respond to suffering. Because in Christ, suffering can't touch me, truly, in any passing sense. I have been given an inheritance which cannot die, an inheritance which cannot be damaged or corrupted, an inheritance which will not fade or run out, which can never be taken from me. In fact, I can give away everything I have, including my life, and not only will I not lose anything, I'll end up with more than I had before. That's how it works in the kingdom. When I give it away, more comes back to me. That is going to radically change my outlook on suffering. I'm going I'm to go towards it, honestly. That's Jesus turning my shame into glory so that Peter will say that it makes perfect sense for me to rejoice when I suffer. I should rejoice. Isn't that wild? That nothing you're going through now, nothing Jesus asks you to do, Nothing Jesus ever asked this church to do, no matter how costly or painful or alienating or shameful, none of it will ultimately hurt you. In fact, it can only benefit you. In eternity, I will somehow be thankful. Somehow, I don't know exactly how, but somehow I will be thankful for every pain I endure in this life for the sake of Jesus. And so Peter encourages us to just start being thankful now in anticipation. This again, the good news for me is a challenge to the world. It challenges the dying glory of the world because nothing in this world can be described with these three words, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, nothing. What have I spent money on this week? It's already perishing. What is the best thing, according to my heart, that the world can offer me? It won't be that best thing for very long. It won't feel that way. What have I anxiously held on to this week that's already fading? The world's goods, they are not worth the energy we give them. But the moments that I've spent with Jesus unfading. I will never regret those moments. The ways that you have shared with others the love of Christ in word and deed, you will never, ever regret it. That investment, it is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And so consider your eternal inheritance and ask yourself, where am I struggling to accept the cost of following Jesus? 
What lesser glory am I holding to? And is it really that much of a cost? There's a million ways that Jesus calls us to obey him and a million reasons the devil gives us to say no, but none of those reasons are actually any good. And so remember your inheritance, friend. Remember your new birth. Remember your inheritance. Everything the world has to offer will die, will break, will wear out, will be taken from you. It's all passing away and it will be gone forever unless it passes through the fire of Jesus. Only in the gospel is resurrection possible. Pause for reflections. What question do I have up first? How does being born again hit you? I'll leave with me. For me, I have, a, it's, it's cringy to me, sadly. And that's me, shows my age. Um, in the 90s, born-again born again Christian, it was sort of like equivalent culturally to evangelical Christian. It was like used in a pejorative sense by elites against people who follow Jesus. And so it just says, I just realized in preaching and preparing that I've sort of been like moving away I don't like this metaphor. And I was convicted by that because I'm denying myself some really, really good news. So it, it, it hits me. I don't know how it hits me. I'm struggling with it. But how does it hit you, either with that baggage or if, you're, if you don't have it, praise the Lord, um, how does it strike you this morning? That's wonderful to like see the evidence of the newness and to name that in each other. Like I see that in you for sure. I think I favored, favored the adoption metaphor. Mm -hmm. That occurred to me like I had realized like, and it might be for the same reasons that you distance yourself from the term born again, having grown up in the church, and that they're both beautiful.
yeah, I see that. Yeah, it's, it just yeah to realize that this is the first thing he told the suffering people, and it's not the first thing I tell myself. <laughs> so, and just sort of like, how should I start telling myself this? Like in the in the in the beginning, that's, that's helpful. How do you think? Because he's writing to a church. Why do you think this phrase is important for us as a community of born again people? Why do we need that phrase right now for us? never gone to therapy or don't done a deep dive into like your family systems and how you like deal with your family and those relationships like if you've ever had any hardship or difficulty with family stuff like which we all have like he's saying you're a new people you're a new family and that we get to find that in a place where maybe we didn't That's really powerful um, to think that this, in a therapeutic culture, that this metaphor sings for a lot of people, that this is what they want. And so we should talk about it. <laughs> that you actually, there, yes, your history is still important. Like, of course, like you won't have a, you, you won't be able to leave your family history, but you can have a break. Like, there can be a clean break in being born again. That's great. That's the good news. I've, I've talked and sort of shared um, a little bit about how not, not wanting to contribute to, like, cultural hostility, but then our good news is kind of the world's bad news in some way. And so I'm curious how you feel, how you, that's hit you. Um, where the Christian's glory is the world's shame or like points out the world's shame. Do you feel like that connection's important for us to like have both of those? Does that make sense? Are they two sides of the same coin? Or to say one, you have to say the other? Yeah. I guess not kind of. I feel pretty angry. I feel my anger like getting more and more. Yeah. Because I don't think that Christians are marginalized in this country. Yeah. At all. And so to say that we're a marginalized group mm -hmm. when we take so much benefit and privilege from so many other people, it doesn't seem fair. And I also think that there does need to be a, a re-understanding of being born again in the church because so much of the church has just become apathy and it's not even what the Bible says. Mm -hmm. So much is just not even scriptural to the point where I'm 24 and I don't know what I'm reading. I don't know what I'm hearing from other people. Mm -hmm. I don't know what I'm supposed to listen to because what I read in the Bible isn't what I hear from, from like, 
political leaders. What I read in the Bible isn't what I hear from Christian leaders. And so it's just really hard to know where truth is, and it's really hard to know who is born again. <laughs> and like, am I supposed to trust that like everyone is? Am I supposed to trust that? I don't know. So I just feel angry because it feels, it doesn't feel right for me to say that other people are in shame because I'm supposedly born again when really like I'm, I'm like living just like they are. I'm not, I don't know, I'm not suffering. Mm-hmm. Thanks for sharing that anger. Um, yeah, it's really hard because we are not in the situation of uh, First Peter's audience by any means. Like they are significantly marginalized and so yeah. I'm struggling too. Like, man, how this? How is this relevant? It, it feels relevant, um, but yeah, I don't want to over. I don't want to overplay a victim card that's not true. Um, so I'm with you in that sort of confusion for sure. As people were listening to her, I mean, answer the question, but what what helps you? Identify with First Peter. I think um, a lot of times I think about the world as something outside of me. Um, but I think this message makes me focus on how the world is inside me as well. cling on to things that um, decay and die and seek salvation through that and um, just like calling to let go of that and like to just like realize you know to like you said that yeah it seems glitzy but it dies and it hasn't saved in the past and it's creating a lot of anxiety Um, but it feels it's, it's hard because this idea of clinging to Christ means saying no to everything else um, and saying no to the world, um, which, yeah, just requires like a full death and like a hope that this new thing um, will bring about salvation when I've tried to do that so many times with worldly things and it has failed me. It seems, it seems like a really risky call um, to look on Jesus and to trust that this thing, um, this singular thing, will provide the salvation that I've tried other things in like aggregate to, to do the same. And so, yeah, this idea that the, I think maybe a, a little bit of response of just trying to uh, kind of turn the world inside me and to for myself, like my history has the world did salvation and it's not and Jesus did salvation and if so it's not worth sharing. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean that that's one of the things that we'll see as we as we move through First Peter is that he doesn't as much as he names the distinction between life and death. Eternity and impermanence. 
he doesn't, he, you should read it and realize that he doesn't actually show hostility to non-Christians, like in the way that he gives counsel. He doesn't like say to circle the wagons in any way. Like he's very much like be among, live among, honor, show honor to the emperor, right? Like you would think that he, his advice would be to like to go away and to like lob insults, but that's just not what he does. And so how can we have this posture of like honesty about things that are dying? And so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna invest in that. Um, and yet not create the tension that we feel um, in like culture war kind of stuff. Um, the radical let's just move move forward. The radical message of First Peter, which he will return to again and again. I think that's the heat. It's like the radiator heat. If I was better, I could like rap to it or something like that. But uh, I'm, I don't like that. So, um, the radical message of First Peter, which he will return to again and again, is that trials and suffering for the sake of Christ actually make the gospel more glorious. That somehow in Christ, when the Savior of the world saved the world through crucifixion, through death, through shame, the world was saved. He flipped shame and honor on its head so that what was shameful is now honorable and what was honorable is now shameful. First Peter 6, 7, he says, in this you rejoice. So now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So suffering is inevitable for the Christian, which that's sort of one of those things where to think like, that, I mean, that's just clear in scripture that Jesus says that, um, Paul says that, Peter says that, that suffering is inevitable, that for very practical reasons, Faith in Christ and the gospel necessarily alienates Christians from the priorities and values of the world. Our new birth, our new citizenship, it turns us into foreigners. And foreigners often aren't treated well. Uh, Peter concedes that suffering is hard. It grieves us. It hurts to suffer for doing good. It hurts to suffer simply for believing in Christ. But Peter asks us to step back from our circumstances and gain a bigger perspective. And ask ourselves, what is happening in our suffering? What is, why does he say it's necessary? And Peter says that our faith is being tested. It's shown, being shown to be real and true. It's being purified like gold in a furnace. And this ultimately will result in more praise and more glory and more honor for Christ and more joy for us. Now, what does genuine faith look like? I think that is interesting. The question is like, who's a Christian? Who's a Christian? There's a little bit of a description here in 1 Peter 1, 8 through 9. Though you have not seen Jesus, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And so that means that people who fearmonger in the name of Christ, it doesn't match here. That's not faith as presented here. That's not what he's commending. He's commending people 
who, though they're suffering, move about the world with joy, inexpressible joy. If, we know, if what we know is true, that we are born again to a living hope and we have been given an inheritance kept in heaven for us, suffering will only confirm this truth. It will confirm that we do love Christ. It will lead to greater joy. And so it's important for us to ask ourselves individually and as a church corporately, what does our faith look like? Do these verses describe us when people come into this room that there's not just belief, but there's affectionate belief, right? There's rejoicing belief, full and glorious belief, even amidst trials, even with difficulties and suffering, with persecution, does this describe your present experience? Has life in San Francisco or at your job or with friends or whatever alien culture you find yourself in, has it purified your faith? To be clear, the the process of purification involves first revealing impurities. And so a lot of our suffering is just watching the, the impurities float to the top in the fire. And that's hard and painful, but the gospel gives us the means to be able to sort of scoop those impurities off slowly but surely to be purified. This is our chance to remember what's true and important. And that was why, first Pe- why Peter wrote First Peter. In 5.12, he says very plainly, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So again, I want you to think about your faith this morning. What is it about following Jesus that's hard right now, public, publicly and privately? Where is Christian faith costing you something? Or where would it cost you something if you were obeying? Where do you feel shame and rejection because of your commitment to Jesus? Because of beliefs and convictions and habits which are at odds with the culture around you? Where's that struggle? And now set that struggle alongside the fact that you are born again. Close your eyes. Picture what that means. You have a new family. You have a new father a new name, a new king, a kingdom. Your body, your heart and soul have been changed fundamentally. How does the gospel of new birth affect your shame? How does it frame your suffering? If you ever study literature, authors frequently use a literary device called a framing narrative. Uh, which is basically just a smaller story that frames the bigger story. Um, And so, for example, the story of Frankenstein is not told directly. It's told through letters from a sailor to his sister. And that's interesting because Mary Shelley could have just told the story. It's like a great story. She could have just started in with the story of him creating this monster, right? Um, It would have saved time. Frankenstein would have been just as successful, but she chose to frame her story within this smaller narrative. And it changes the way you receive the story, just like a picture frame will change and affect how you receive a picture. Um, It's always interesting when you go to an art museum, what the curator chose to put around the art, whether this is like elaborate, ornate piece or a very simple frame, it makes a difference in how you see the painting. Um, I'm a sucker for news stories about people who happen upon a masterpiece in their grandma's attic or whatever, you know, where grandpa bought a $2 Picasso and didn't realize it, and then they discover it. How many of our stories and suffering are like that? A $2 garage sale Picasso. 
And we treat it as a throwaway thing. We stuff it in the attic because it feels unimportant or it's even shameful to us. But then Peter comes along and says to us, this story, your story, was authored by none other than the eternal God of the universe. And he gives us this framing narrative for our suffering. And by it, God takes our story, he dusts it off, and he crafts this unbelievably beautiful frame about new birth, being born again, turning our shame into glory. Will you see your suffering and shame through the story of the gospel, the glory of resurrection and new birth and and eternal inheritance? And at the same time, will you see the vainglory of the world, that it's not what it pretends to be? Let us remember what we know and what's important. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are thankful for 1 Peter. We're thankful that the Holy Spirit inspired 1 Peter to write and for it to be preserved. And we we ask for the Holy Spirit to illuminate this scripture to us and to help us in our specific setting. Father, we're thankful that we are born again. Let that not be a throwaway phrase for us. Let it be good news as we wrestle with family, as we wrestle with suffering, as we wrestle with shame. Help us to receive the gracious glory of God in being born again. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.